The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? Joel Greenblatt, he is Wall Street royalty. He's a legend uh, in the hedge fund and mutual fund world. Uh, he ran a, a fund called Gotham Capital, 10 consecutive years, compounding at 50% a year. Those numbers are just off the charts. At the end of the decade, he returned money back to investors and said, I'm going to just manage my own money for a while. Thanks. 14 years later, he opens a mutual fund, Gotham Asset Management. Uh, his Index Plus was just rated the number one fund out of 1,200 large cap mutual funds. Uh, just astonishing, astonishing numbers. It, that fund is only three years old. It acts as a hedge fund alternative. Uh, you probably know the name Joel Greenblatt from his books. He tells the story of why you too can be a stock market genius was a terrible and accidental title, as well as the little book that beats the stock market, the magic formula. I'm going to just shut up and say, with no further ado, a fascinating conversation with Joel Greenblatt. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Joel Greenblatt. He is the managing principal and co-chief investment officer of Gotham Asset Management, the successor to Gotham Capital, in a manner of speaking. He's also an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, where he teaches value and special situation investing. He is the author of numerous well-selling books, best-selling books. You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, The Little Book That Beats the Market, The Big Secret for the Small Investor, Joel Greenblatt. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks. So I've been excited to uh, speak to you. I very vividly remember when You Can Be a Stock Market Genius came out uh, in the late 90s and exploded. It was sort of out of left field, at least to me, and just was suddenly a really, really big book. But let's let's go back and start um, early. So I have to ask the question from you can be a stock market genius. What did going to the dog track teach you about investing? Well, I wrote uh, up in the book that uh, you know the only place when I was younger I kind of liked gambling and. The only place that would let us sneak in was the dog track when I was on vacation in Florida, and so I used to sneak in with my cousin. And we uh, got to place bets and have a good time, and you know, half the fun was sneaking in. But uh, we figured we really had the whole dog track thing nailed when we found a dog that had run uh, its last race in 32 seconds, and all the other dogs had run it in 44 seconds. And we thought, wow, you know, we really have a great dog. We're going to bet on this thing. What were the odds? Oh, we had, you know, very high odds. It was close to 99 to 1, I think, mm -hmm. which I think is as high as they let it go. And so we thought we were going to clean up. Uh, and 
of course we lost, you know, <laughs> that dog had been running a shorter race. That's why it only ran 32 seconds. And so you sort of really have to know something uh, when you're betting. And, and the same thing for investing. You know, if you don't know what you're doing, uh, it's, an, you know, as they say, an expensive place to find out. So for, for sure. uh, the dog track, I think, was a nice lesson. Losing, you know, 2 or $4 uh, is a, a very cheap lesson for us. So you go to school at Wharton, both undergrad and graduate. How did you find your way to Wall Street? What was your first job like? Uh, well, I got a uh, summer job on Wall Street first at Kidder Peabody in their research department. And to tell you how long ago it was, uh, we were adjusting financial statements for inflation, which uh, doesn't uh, probably wouldn't be a big seller right now. For, for the younger uh, listeners, tell us what is this inflation you speak of? Well, you know, when you hold your dollars and it buys less and less uh, each year, uh, but less and less was like six or eight percent, not uh, you know half a percent or one percent or what we've become used to in the last ten years or so. And and what led you from research into the art of stock picking? Well, junior year, I read an article actually in Forbes magazine about uh, Ben Graham's uh, stock picking uh, formula. And it was really uh, what they used to call net-nets or stock selling below their liquidation value. And it seemed very simple to me because I was at Wharton at the time and they were learning uh, efficient market theory. Uh, and none of it resonated with me. I was kind of, like I said, interested in uh, gambling or at least mm -hmm. speculating or figuring things out and then taking a, a calculated gamble. Uh, and what they were telling me was don't try. They were saying that no one can beat the market, and the stock prices are efficient. And just through simple observation, looking at the newspaper, and they used to have the 52-week high-low prices in the newspaper, it seemed unreasonable that you know the fair price was 51 day, and eight months later it was 120. Uh, and that was pretty much every stock had that kind of range every year. And it didn't make sense to me that the fundamentals of the underlying businesses were actually changing that much. And so when I read Ben Graham, sort of a light bulb went off, just this little article. Then I started reading everything I could about uh, what he had written, uh, both security analysis and the intelligent investor, and eventually led my way to Warren Buffett, and uh, you know, sort of the rest is history. It's a very good age. You know, I was uh, younger than 21 at the time, you know, junior year of, uh, of college, to recognize that this was what I was going to be doing the rest of my life. So let's talk a little bit about value investing, since you mentioned Graham and Buffett. Value has had a pretty rough go of it the past decade, very reminiscent of a similar period of rough performance in the 90s. For those of us with a value tilt in our portfolios, explain why this is a cyclical phenomena and not the death of value investing. Right. Well, my definition of value is figure out what the business is worth and pay a lot less. It is not low price to book, low price mm -hmm. sales investing, which uh, if you took a look at Morningstar, you took a look at Russell and, and they analyze what we do, they don't put us in value as value investors. They put us in blend. As Warren Buffett would say, value and growth are tied at the hip. Growth is part of value. So the way that it's traditionally done uh, you know, now and categorized is not my definition of value. So what 
traditionally, uh, when people characterize these things, uh, low price book, low price sales, those are things that have correlated well in the past with uh, higher returns cyclically, but over time it tends to work because, let's say, low price book. Uh, you know, something selling it uh, close to its book value, well, that just means people aren't giving a very high value to the business itself. They're just sort of valuing it pretty close to the cost of the assets that were placed in the business and not giving much of a premium. So you would tend to get more than your fair share of companies that are out of favor, meaning because they're priced low. Uh, but if you are a private equity firm trying to buy a business, you're not buying it because it's trading close to its book value. You're looking at cash flows and trying to project what they're going to be in the future and what are you paying relative to that and what's it worth. And that has nothing to do with low price book, low, uh, low price sales. It really has to do with the cash flow generating uh, part of the business. So, you know, it does not bother me that <laughs> traditional value as defined by Morningstar or Russell or whoever else defines it with sort of factor-like attributes of individual stocks has or has not worked. I mean, you know, here's the big thing. The way I describe it is, look, momentum has worked well for the last 30, 40 years, uh, not just in this country, but across the globe with one or two exceptions. Uh, the reason we don't, we're not momentum investors, and, and there's no argument about it. It has. It's just that if it didn't work for the next two years, it could be that it's just cyclically out of favor like we're mm -hmm. talking about, and all we have to do is be patient. And it works over the long term. You just have to be a patient investor. Or it could be that it's you know not so hard to figure out a uh, stock used to be down here and now it's up here and there's plenty of data and computers and ability to crunch numbers and plus plenty of research papers that say that momentum's worked over a period of 30, 40 years. And maybe if it doesn't work over the next two years, the trade has become crowded and it's degraded. And that's why it didn't work over the next two years. And two years from now, I wouldn't know whether it's just cyclically out of favor or the trade's degraded. So that's why I'm not a a momentum investor. The reason I'm a value investor, according to our definition, is stocks are actually ownership shares of businesses that you value and try to buy at a discount. They're not pieces of paper that bounce around that you put sharp ratios and Sortino ratios and use computer simulations to balance your portfolios or whatever it is. Basically, they're ownership shares of businesses that you value and try to buy at a discount. So it's certainly possible that the market does not reward my valuations, even if I'm right, over the next two years. But that doesn't mean we're going to stop doing what we're doing. That's what stocks are, ownership shares of businesses. And that's very fundamental to the way we look at everything. And if you actually look at it that way, you can see all of modern portfolio theory and all of the way most uh, academics and uh, many advisors and managers look at the world. It just seems kind of insane when you really boil it down to ownership shares of businesses that you're trying to value. And then you can really sift through all the confusion uh, that uh, very smart people have tried to uh, put a lot of numbers uh, on the investment business that don't make a lot of sense. That, that's absolutely fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about Gotham Capital. You start in 1985 with uh, about $7 million, some of it coming from Michael Milken. How did that relationship begin, and, and why was Milken interested in investing with you? Uh, well, the simple story is that I had a friend at Wharton who was one of the first people uh, who was in Michael Milken's group. And I, I had been working at a uh, hedge fund for about three years after graduating from Wharton, and uh, I had always wanted to go out on my own, and I felt I was ready, and I mentioned it to my friend. 
And I said, gee, if I could raise, you know, X dollars, uh, I'd go out on my own. And uh, my good friend uh, gave me a call the next day and said, Mike said, fine. <laughs> Just like that. Yeah. So uh, it wasn't wasn't quite as easy as that. You know, I had to negotiate my terms and uh, uh, it was actually kind of a funny story because it was my life and he did, you know, I don't know at the time, 20, 30 deals a day. I have no <laughs> idea, but it was my life and I'm not a very good negotiator at all. But uh, when I was in the room with him, I wanted the terms that I wanted to, to run the money because it was going to be my life and I only had one to give and this right. was one of 30 deals. And so I wouldn't give in, and we sat in there for an hour while he kept uh, Ronald Perman waiting because he was about to buy Revlon. <laughs> and, you know, I was just like a little tiny deal, and I wouldn't give in because, you know, like I said, I had a bottom line, which is uh, pretty rare for and me. And he didn't let you walk. He, he 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 negotiated like this was the biggest deal of his life, even right. though I knew it was just, you know, something he did, you know, deserted lunch one day or something. And, <laughs> right. and uh, he left the room because I wouldn't give in, and he sent his brother in. right. And, uh, you know, after a half hour, I got the terms I wanted from his brother. And then when Mike got back, he was not very happy. But that's how I got into business. And uh, he was a good partner for me. That's a great story. So I have to share with our listeners your returns. You, you compound from 1985 to 1995 at 40% annually before fees. No, 50% annually before fees. 40% annually after fees? No, it's... Uh, fifty For those 10 years, it was uh, 50, 50% plus a year. before fees. That's astounding. That's an incredible run of numbers. So the first question is, what's the secret sauce? How are you... Comp- I, I, we all know the 80s and 90s were a boom time, but it wasn't 50% a year. What was the secret sauce for that sort of returns? Well, one of the ways to to get those kind of returns is not to run a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So after five years in business, we returned half our outside capital. Back to investors. Yes. They must ten- have been thrilled. They were not thrilled. <laughs> uh, but uh, after 10 years, returned all of it. That would made them really not thrilled. <laughs> because And the other way is to be concentrated. Mm-hmm. So six to eight ideas were usually 80 plus percent of our portfolio. So that portfolio management theory doesn't like that strategy right. very much. Not either. diversified, higher risk, blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, Warren Buffett has a good response to that as well. You know, he says, listen, let's say you sold out your business and you got a million dollars and you're living in town and you want to figure out something smart to do with it. So you analyze all the businesses in towns. Let's say there's hundreds of businesses and you stick to you find businesses where the management's really good, the prospects for the business are good, it's run well, they treat shareholders well, and you divide your million dollars between eight businesses that you've researched well in town. No one would think that's imprudent. They'd actually think that was pretty prudent. But when you get to call them stocks and you get stock quotes daily on these pieces of paper that bounce around and put people put numbers on it and volatility and all these other things where really it's not that meaningful – you know, so in one sense, if you're investing in businesses and you did a lot of research and invested in eight different businesses with the proceeds of your sale, people would think you're a pretty prudent guy. All of a sudden, if you invested in stocks and did the same type of work, people think you're insane. <laughs> and uh, it's just an interesting analogy that I always think of when people make fun of me that I was that concentrated. You, you know, the flip side of that is imagine if we got prints minute by minute for the valuation of our homes. 
people would lose their mind. They wouldn't be able to manage it. So that understanding- Well, imagine if you had a, a theory of buying homes. Like, I'm going to buy the ones that went up the most last <laughs> right. three months or six months. I mean, it's a really good analogy. I usually use the house analogy uh, when people ask me, how do we go about in valuing stocks? And uh, people understand it completely when they're buying a house. There's certain things you would do. And we don't do any different than owning a business. That, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. So now let me tack to what you're doing currently. So whereas you previously returned a bunch of money to investors and hedge funds and saying, hey, we, we don't think there's a, this can scale enough that we can keep generating these returns for you. Now you're, you're going the opposite direction and saying, okay, we're going to look for something that can scale. So tell us a little bit uh, about the Gotham Index Plus portfolio. We were talking earlier uh, offline about passive versus active. This is a little bit of both. Right. So uh, we didn't run outside money until, uh, again, after uh, we returned it all in 94. We ran our inter- We had been lucky enough to keep our staff uh, and run our internal money. But in, and, we and how just, long did you do that for? Uh, 14 years. And mm-hmm. then uh, in 2009, we started taking outside money again. Uh, and it was really, you know, really starts really back when I was in business school. And I had read that article about Benjamin Graham. And I actually did a study with a couple of my classmates, uh, Rich Pizzina, who's a famous money manager now, and uh, Bruce Newberg, who's still a good friend of mine. And we did some work on Ben Graham's formulas, and we ended up uh, doing a research paper and having it published in the uh, Journal of Portfolio Management uh, back in about 1981. And I'd always been fascinated by that. And over the years, we had really evolved more towards the way Warren Buffett invests, not just cheap, but cheap and good. Mm-hmm. And I'd been teaching at Columbia for a number of years. I've been doing that 22 years now. But, you know, at that time in the, the early 2000s, uh, I'd been doing it for a bunch of years. And, and uh, we had been making money using the same principles that Buffett uses, you know, buying cheap, good businesses. And uh, I wanted to prove that uh, together with my partner, Rob Goldstein, I wanted to prove that the, the what I had been teaching my students, what we had been using to make money, worked very well, just like we had shown that Ben Graham's simple methodology still worked uh, back in the uh, 70s and early 80s. I wanted to show that what we had evolved more into, the Warren Buffett way of earning money, worked too. We wanted to prove it in the same way that we had written that paper about. So uh, we hired a uh, computer analysts that could help us, you know, mine through data. And we came up with some very simple metrics for good, you know, what, what's a good business. What, and uh, if you read through Buffett's letters, he's, it's very clear he's looking for businesses that earn high returns on tangible capital. Um, and what that means is every business needs working capital. Every business needs fixed assets. How well can it convert that working capital and fixed assets into earnings? And in the book, uh, the little book that beats the market, I, I, which I really wrote for my kids to understand this, I, I explained it this way. Imagine you're building a store and you have to buy the land and build the store and set up the displays and stock it with inventory. And all that costs you $400,000. And every year, if the store earns $200,000, that's a 50% return on tangible capital. Maybe I'll open some more stores. Then I compared it to another store, and I, I called that store just broccoli. It wasn't, it's not a very good idea just to sell broccoli in your store, but you still have to buy the land, build the store, set up the displays, stock it with inventory. Still going to cost you roughly the $400,000, but because it's basically a stupid idea just to sell broccoli, maybe you only earn $10,000. That's a 2.5% return on tangible capital. And so all we said was, 
all things being equal, much prefer to own the business that, business that can reinvest its money at 50% returns right. than 2.5% returns. So that was one metric. Good. That's what we looked at. And if you read through Buffett's letters, that's the first thing he's looking for. The other metric we looked at is cheap. You know, and the analogy I would use is a house. You know, it's a million-dollar house. And one question you might ask is, how much rent could I get for that thing? And if you're trying to figure out whether that's a good deal or not. And if you could get $80,000 a year in rent, that's an 8% yield in a 2 or 3% interest rate environment. That today might look fairly attractive. So we sort of looked at how much cash is the business generating relative to the all-in cost of buying the business. Then we looked at whether it's in a good business. When they have the money, what do they do with it? Okay, so we came up with two crude metrics for good and cheap. And, you know, Ben Graham said buy it cheap. Warren Buffett said if you can buy a good business cheap, even better. We combined those two. And uh, we used a crude database, you know, simple database that was publicly available. Well, for a price, it was publicly available. <laughs> and uh, we went and tested those two simple concepts, good and cheap. It's not like we spun the computer thousands of times. This was the very first test we did, and it came out so phenomenally well that I wrote a book about it called The Little Book That Beats the Market. That was the very first test we did. That's what I wrote up. But my partner, Rob Goldstein, and I looked at each other and said, you know, I would call that the not trying very hard method. We actually know how to value businesses. You know, couldn't we? It works so well without trying. Couldn't we even improve on this? And so we built a big research team. You know, there's 13 of us now. We mm -hmm. have a seven-person tech team. And what we're really trying to do is just take advantage of that initial research and actually valuing businesses. And uh, what we discovered was that – and we were really building it for ourselves. You know, hey, can we do something with this? Uh, but it turned out that owning hundreds of names and being right on average was actually uh, – we could make more money because we would have much less volatile returns. We'd, have we'd get what we expect more often by owning hundreds and being right on average. And so it was very easy to put it together as a long, short portfolio, buying our favorite cheapest stocks, shorting our most expensive. And because we were doing hundreds and because we were very good at valuing businesses on average, okay, as opposed to having to be right on every single one when you own six or eight, we turned out we made more money because we had spent less time getting negative returns uh, with a diversified portfolio. And when we discovered that, we were willing to take outside money again. And this was back in March 09, is that We correct? opened our first uh, fund for institutions in March 09. We opened our first mutual fund in 2012. And we made some decisions back in 2009. Number one, we said that most hedge fund managers, because we were long, short investing with leverage, right. were charging too much. I had sat on Penn's investment board for 10 years, UGA's for 10 years, and I saw most of the managers out there. Not many just one and a half and 20 or two and 20. And the other part that's wrong with the hedge fund business is that when people pay those kind of prices, they're not very patient. So it's the worst of all worlds. You know, you're charging too much to your clients and they don't stay very long because they're, uh, they're impatient when they're, they're paying so much. So we made two decisions. One is to uh, make our fees very reasonable. So we didn't have a performance fee. We just had, depending on the strategy, you know, maybe a 2% management fee with nothing else on a hedge fund as opposed to 2 and 20. That was pretty uh, novel at the time. Mm -hmm. And the other uh, was that instead of locking people in for a year or two or three, we said it's monthly liquidity. We don't want to run money for you if you don't want to be with us. And uh, 30 also days is not a big gate these days at all. Right. Well, the idea really was is that when you give a gate 
every September or October, people have to decide whether they want to lock up for another year or two. Mm -hmm. When you have monthly liquidity, you're never forcing them to make a decision, maybe at a wrong time. They can always have their money. And it's not a signaling device to say you should have a short time horizon. Actually, for what we do, you need a long time horizon. But what it is is uh, a comfort to know you could always have it and actually the money's stickier. So we thought those were two things wrong with the hedge fund business. People took out at all the wrong times. They're charging too much, so we would leave our investors with more money and uh, ability to have their money anytime. It was actually turned into be a very sticky business. And that's why three years later, we were able to get into the mutual fund business, not dilute our strategy because we were not charging exorbitant rates. We weren't charging a performance fee uh, on our hedge funds. And so we were able to turn institutional quality hedge funds into mutual funds uh, without diluting our strategy. If you're charging two and 20 to your, or one and a half and 20, whatever it is to your investors, you can't move into the mutual fund space and just charge one and a half or 2% because uh, without diluting your strategy because your institutional investors would get upset. So what ended up happening is that we ended up going to the mutual fund area because we were charging very reasonable fees that would also work in the mutual fund area. But this is what we discovered, and this is my long-winded way of answering your question, your very good question. How do we get into the Gotham Index Plus strategy, which is our new strategy? Well, it turns out, and we know this, but once we were able to come to registered investment advisors who talk to individual investors much more closely than institutionals, uh, institutional uh, clients, the problem with active management in general is that to beat the market, you have to do something different than the market. Mm -hmm. High active share is in the parlance of the industry. Right. To beat the market, you have to do something different. But your returns are going to, as a result, zig and zag differently. So I wrote a book called The Big Secret in 2011, and I still say it's a big secret because no one bought that or read that. (laughs) Uh, So I'll just tell you about it. Uh, in it, I wrote up a few studies of, uh, remember I wrote in 2011, so I wrote up the, the decade 2000 to 2010. This was a period where the market was flat, but the best performing mutual fund for that decade was up 18% a year. It's just that the average investor in that fund managed to lose 11% a year on a dollar-weighted basis by moving in and out at all the wrong times. Right. So every time the market went up, people piled into that fund. When the market went down, they piled out. When the fund outperformed, they piled in. When the fund underperformed, they piled out. And they took that 18% annual gain when the market was flat. So that's great on an annualized basis over a 10-year period to beat the market right. by 18 points. But for outside investors, they went in and out so badly that the average investor on a dollar-weighted basis lost 11% a year. Uh, and Astonishing. I, it's astonishing, and, and, and it's typical. Uh, even for institutions, I wrote up a study of institutional managers. So I took a look at the, uh, you know, that study which showed the top performing institutional managers for the same decade, 2000 to 2010. Who ended up with the best 10-year record, quartile? And what did that, who, who ended up in the top quartile? And what did that look like? And what the study showed was that 97% of those who ended up with the best 10-year record spent at least three of those 10 years in the bottom half of performance. Not shocking, but everyone, because to beat the market, you have to do something different. You're going to have periods of outperform, underperformance, and everyone did. 79% of those who ended up with the best 10-year record spent at least three of those 10 years, at least three of the 10 years in the bottom quartile of performance. Wow. And the one I love is that 47%, half, they ended up with the best 10-year record, but they spent at least three of those 10 years in the bottom decile, the bottom 10% wow. of performers. So you know no one stayed with them, but that's how you end up with the best record. So here's a conundrum. There's a minority of active managers who beat the market. And it's consistently very, over a decade long Yes, period. and it's very hard to find them up front before they beat the market. And if you do, 
it's almost impossible to stick with them because to beat the market, you have to do something different than the market. So, you know, picking active managers has been a, a loser's game for a long time, disp- even if there are some that win, and it's a minority. I agree it's a minority. Uh, and so my partner Rob and I took a look at this problem and said, how can we solve this? Because part of the reason we're doing this, we like making money, but if we're not making money for other people, which is, uh, it, there really is uh, not a lot of sense. And once we got into the mutual fund area, we wanted to help individual investors take advantage of the fact that we think we know what we're doing. So we developed something called Gotham Index Plus. So I was going to say, Wes Gray of Alpha Architect, I don't know if you're familiar sure. with his work, has a piece, I'm, I'm sure I'm mangling the um, title, but it's something along the lines uh, even God would lose clients as an active manager, and I, I just find that hilarious. So what are you doing so differently with the Index Plus compared to what you were doing previously um, with special situations, and what did your research find about um, how you could work around this problem of individuals underperforming their own investments? Yeah, so it sounds almost like an impossible puzzle, but I'll tell you how we solved it. We said, number one, most people judge how they're doing, for better or worse, by seeing if they beat the S&P 500. That's in this country. And so we started there. We said most people are going to stick with things if it's beating the S&P 500 and lose if it's losing by too much to the S&P 500. So we started with that base for Gotham Index Plus, And we said, you give us a dollar. We're going to buy the underlying stocks in the S&P 500, we're going to put a dollar into that in the weights of the S&P 500. So you give us a dollar. This is in mutual fund form. You give us a dollar. We recreate the S&P 500 bottoms up and put a dollar into the S&P 500. Okay? That doesn't sound so hard to do. And don't think of ourselves as charging for that portion. That's pretty mm-hmm. easy to do. And you're doing this not with indices, but with actual individual stocks? Yes, we stocks. buy the individual stocks because, uh, as you'll hear in a moment, we're very, very uh, tax efficient. hmm So it helps us to own the individual stocks. Then we go out and we buy 90 cents more of our favorite S&P stocks within the mutual fund. And And how how many are that? Is that second, the plus part? What happens is we, to the 250 out of the 500 stocks in the S&P 500 that we like the best, we add 90 cents more of those Uh in the order in which we like them. So the more we like something, the more we'll add to it. Uh, And then we'll short or we'll sell 90 cents worth of the stocks we like the least. So we have a 90 long, 90 short, long short overlay on top of the dollar in the S&P. But we do some things to mitigate because obviously if we're going to zig and zag too much, we want to have tracking error, but positive tracking error. People don't mind winning all the time. It's the losing part that they don't (laughs) like. Of course. So we're trying to mitigate the losing part. So what do we do? We're buying the cheapest stocks we can find and putting 90 cents into them. In addition to the index, uh, the dollar already in the index. And we're shorting 90 cents of our least favorite. But we want to balance that 90-90. So we have a zero beta on that 90-90 because we're already long a dollar of the market. We want to keep the same beta as the market. Number two, we don't want to drive tracking error. So we we don't want small stocks to drive returns. So if something's, let's say, 0.01% of the S&P 500, we don't want that driving our returns. But we may really like that stock. We may think it's really cheap. So we will buy more of it. And we may even buy five or eight times more of it. But that's oh, only really? 0.05 or 0.08%. Not really going to drive returns. We'll buy as much as we can, uh, subject to the constraints uh, that we don't want to drive too much tracking error. The third thing we do 
is we uh, balance fundamentals. In other words, the stocks we're short of stocks trading at 40, 50, 100 times earnings. These are hope stocks. People really think they're buying them now, not on current earnings, but 2022, they think it's going to be really great. So they're buying these. These are hope stocks based on the future. They're trading at 40, 50, 100 uh, times earnings. and But there are other reasons why people like them. Maybe sales are growing really quickly or other aspects of the fundamentals are going well. So we balance those fundamentals. So if you took a look at our long portfolio, we have just as good sales growth in the cheap stocks we're buying mm-hmm. as the expensive stocks we're shorting. So it's they're not unbalanced that way. In other words, we're just getting them cheaper. They're cheaper. We're making comparable. We're buying the cheapest stocks we can find. We're shorting the most expensive subject to constraints that keep us in line. One is there's a zero beta. Two is that small stocks won't drive returns. Three is that we balance fundamentals. So all we're doing is buying companies that are doing really well, and we're just getting them cheaper. And uh, as a result, uh, we've been we just passed our three-year anniversary in this fund. Uh, we got five stars from Morningstar, but more importantly, we beat all 1,200 funds in our category, which is wow. large cap blend where the S&P is. And the most important part is, is that we didn't do nearly as well as I hope to do in the next three years. Uh, this was a very tough period for us. Even though we did very well relative to the other funds, we didn't do very well relative to our expectations. And the reason for that is because the market, with you know, excluding the last two months, went straight up during those three years uh, with no corrections. Big, you have a big leverage short. Yeah, we're short. We're short hope stocks. The ninety cents we're short are hope stocks. When you take risk in hope stocks and you get paid, then you take more risk and you take more risk, and, and there's no correction. So there's a very tough period for our short book. Luckily, our long book we're not low. As I said before, we're not low price to book, low price sales investors. We're cash flow oriented investors, mm-hmm. and people get very optimistic about about our cash flows and our businesses when things are going well. So our longs were able to keep pace with our shorts and even add three points a year to the. Uh, uh, to that, and we so, so, so the plus long did better than the plus short, and you still have the underlying S and P. Correct. So it was as index plus, mm-hmm. but the great news is is that spread that ninety by ninety long short spread actually does better in bad markets. Well, that was my next question. You took the words out of my mouth. If we were to see, forget even another uh, oh, 2000 to oh two or oh eight oh nine, but uh, I'm trying to think of a comparable. I was going to say 73, 74, but that's not all that different from 08, 09. But if we see a run-of-the-mill 20 to 30% correction that lasts eight months, how would you expect this to perform? Well, those are our best markets for our spread. So obviously, the index portion wouldn't do all that well. But you would want – we view it as an index and you own protection. In other words, for that portion of your portfolio, you want to be 40 50%, 60% net long. If that's where your risk tolerance is, what's the smartest way to take that 100% long – allocation to the market of that 40 or 50, 60. And so what we like about Index Plus is it's really like owning the index with protection attached because you take high-priced cash in companies out or companies selling it 100 times pre-tax-free cash flow or 50 times, they're going to take those guys out and shoot them in bad markets. Right. These are hope stocks. Those are going to get crushed. Tesla, Netflix, go down the whole All list those guys them. are going to get crushed, you know, uh, it turns out, you know, through all our research and everybody else's, that buying things at 100 times earnings or things that are losing money is pretty much the world's worst strategy <laughs> over time. Shocker. And so in bad markets, even worse than that. Mm. Uh, those stocks would get crushed. We're buying stocks that are have huge cash flows. People have low expectations for them. That's why we're getting them so cheap. And so we don't pay for high expectations in the long book. So when the low bad news comes in, we didn't pay for high expectations. So our longs tend to hold up better. Our shorts are getting killed. 
great spreads and bad markets. And, and let me just tell you where I think the market is. We value, we have a big research team, and we value all the companies in the S&P 500. We also value the top roughly 3,000 companies. But we value the the stocks in the S&P 500 every day for the last 28 years, bottoms mm -hmm. up. So I can contextualize where do we stand today relative to those 28 years. And right now we stand in the 16th percentile towards expensive over those 28 years, meaning the market's been cheaper 84% of the time for the S&P and cheaper 16% of the time. Then I can go back and look at what's happening. You mean from more expensive 16% of the time? It's uh, more Cheap. expensive 16% of the time, che uh, cheaper 84% okay. of the time. My apologies. So it's expensive. And we can go back in time and look at what's happened to the market over the next few years uh, from this valuation level in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a prediction. It's just saying what's happened from this valuation level in the past. And the answer to that is your forward returns have averaged 3 to 5%, two-year forwards 8 to 10 Not negative because the market averaged 9 to 10% returns right. during those 28 years. And that's something we've come to get used to. It's not necessarily will continue in the future, but that's what we've come to get used to. And we're more expensive than that. Mm -hmm. So from the 16th percentile, expected returns are about 3 to 5%, 8 to 10 over the next two years. So if we get closer to what we're thinking over the next year, 3 to 5, and when we tested this over the 17 years before we went live, we were able to add about 7 points to that. So if we mm -hmm. can add anywhere close to that and the market's only earning 3 to 5, people are really going to enjoy those extra returns at that time. Our best returns are actually in not up 3 to 5%, which is very good returns, above average returns, but negative returns. We had double-digit spreads in all the four years that we looked at that the market in our tests that, that the market was down, uh, and the, the, that'll be very precious to have, not lose money. So you own the index plus protection. It's a more painless way to uh, be long, 100% long the market, and we think people will stick with us because it's uh, the underperformance periods would be way mitigated based on the way we're doing it, and we're already long a dollar in the market. And you're only owning companies that are within the S&P 500, so my assumption is you can scale this pretty easily. Right. Well, not only that, but we also don't buy big positions in small pieces of the S&P 500, so we're not worried about uh, capacity here. We're just worried about getting uh, high returns for investors. That That is quite fascinating. I very vividly... Remember this book coming out in 97, 98, something 97, like that, yeah. and, and exploding. Like it came out of left field. I don't think a lot of the investing public um, necessarily knew who you were, and suddenly this book was everywhere. Um, what motivated you to write this 20 years ago, 20-plus years ago? can't really explain why, but I love <laughs> investing, and I always wanted to write and teach, and investing is what I know about. So I teach investing. I've been doing that at Columbia for 22 years and always wanted to write about it. And so you can be a stock market genius. See, I can't even think of the name because uh, <laughs> it was such a bad name. But uh, It was a great marketing name. You may not love the name because it doesn't really describe the contents of the book that well, but it certainly caught people's attention. Well, it was really supposed to be any fool can be a stock market genius, but the ah. Motley Fools came out with a book. Uh, and so I had about 24 hours to change the name, and I was canvassing my family, and my father said something like, how about you can be a stock market genius, and then in parentheses, even if you're not too smart. And I kind of 
giggled about it, and uh, and we put that in. It, it turned out to be one of the worst titles ever on the hardcover. Made. That the yeah. parentheses, you, even if you're not too smart, is is part of that. Yeah. So, uh, but I just really, it was really a collection of war stories uh-huh. from you know we had talked about. We had run outside money for ten years, earned fifty percent before fees for that period, and uh, how do we do that? And you know, how can you do that? And what 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 are the what's the way you'd go about attacking that? And I just had a fun time writing about the war stories and having a good time with it. So let's talk a little bit about some of those war stories. First, how old does the book hold up twenty years later? Well, I have five kids and made all my kids read it. Number one, and <laughs> yeah. uh, so I still think it's uh, everything in there is very valid. You know. Many hedge fund managers. I did not write it for hedge fund managers. That's really who took to it the the most. Which uh, is, had to be an interesting surprise. Yeah, I really wrote it to be friendly and funny, and and you know just have a good time doing it. And I thought I was writing to an audience uh, of average people, but you know I hadn't started teaching at Columbia yet, and I realized as soon as I taught my first class back in '96 uh, that. I think I really wrote this uh, at an MBA <laughs> level because it was about at their level, and that wasn't my uh, my goal. But you know, now lots of these big hedge funds hand it out first day when someone walks in and says, "Go read this." So let's talk a little bit about spinoffs, which was such an important part in the first, uh, let's call it, third of the book. Ninety, the twenty years or more that preceded this, a lot of M and A, a lot of. Uh, uh, conglomerates being formed would make sense that the next era that follows it sees a lot of spinoffs. Um, but since since the book came out, we've seen certainly in the past decade or so less and less spinoffs. Do you think that part of the analysis ha- uh, still holds true, or is this just like everything else? No, cyclical? no, there are pl- there are plenty of spinoffs, and it's inherent uh, now. And people have done studies up through last year that show that they did much better than the market as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that wasn't really my point. My point is is that the nature of spinoffs is uh, they're not underwritten written securities. They're usually given to people who don't want them. Right. And uh, there's an interesting behavioral element that you describe. And 97 is long before behavioral finance was everywhere, which is I expect people to get this and say, this is not why I bought XYZ. I certainly didn't buy it for the ABC spinoff. So there's a tendency for a lot of people to not even analyze it, sell it, and suddenly there's a good, cheap property there. Right. So it may be cheap. It may not be cheap. They're not usually well-followed. So there, I would call it mispriced. It's ripe for mispricing. It doesn't mm-hmm. really... All the studies that show the average spinoff does this or outperforms or doesn't outperform doesn't matter. What I was really trying to show people is places to look where things may be mispriced. And here, where people have never followed this company before, it's not being sold by an investment firm, given to people who don't really want it, it's ripe for mispricing. It could be underpriced, could be overpriced, doesn't matter which one. It's, uh, you know, I, I described in the book that it's, you know, no fun to take a shovel and dig holes. But if you're dig- digging for buried treasure, uh, it gets more interesting. And so this is an area where it has a big red X on it, where there could be a nice treasure underneath if you dig here. So it's worth doing the work uh, in these areas. So ripe for mispricing is what I'd say. It doesn't really matter how the average spinoff does. Uh, however, they have done very well. There are some things, as you mentioned, uh, built into the system that make people uh, get rid of them 
uh, and, and there are a lot of other areas in the market that does that. But the idea behind the whole book was sort of look where, you know, I started off with uh, my in-laws. Uh, the first chapter was about my in-laws who uh, used to shop in Connecticut for antiques and yard sales and 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 country auctions and and things like that. Artwork you mentioned, uh, yeah, artwork and... and sculptures and all these things. And they're looking off the beaten path. They're not looking in Manhattan on Madison Avenue or uh, you know Fifth Avenue. They're they're really looking uh, off the beaten ha- path, trying to find things that are undiscovered. But. I made the point of saying they're not looking for the next Picasso. They're not finding a painting in some yard sale saying, hey, this guy's going to be the next Picasso. Uh, That's really hard to do. What they're really looking for is a painting that they found the same artist had had done a painting that's of the similar uh, idea that just went up for auction for three times the price it's being offered for over at Sotheby's. So they they recognize that uh, right now, a similar painting just went for three times as much. That's a lot easier to do than to project or predict the next Picasso. And so that's what they were doing. And that's what you're doing in the spinoff area. Uh, you're looking in play. Your, your bargain comes because you're looking a little harder than other people. You're looking at uh-huh. things that are a little harder to do, a little harder to find, probably smaller than most people are willing to look at, not the main idea. Usually these are discarded things. And these are all things that are ripe for mispricing. It makes a lot of sense. In the book, there, there's something that cracked me up. You write, never trust anyone over 30 and never trust anyone 30 and under. Essentially, never trust anyone. T- tell us a little bit about your thought process with that. Well, when both of us were growing up, that was a saying, never trust anyone right. over 30. I think anyone who's younger than we are probably doesn't even know that expression. So from the, from not the as late funny 60s to them. And- yeah, back in the 60s when we were growing up, it, that's what you were saying, you know, don't trust the man, right. you know, anyone over 30. And, and uh, that was just my way of saying that you have to be your own boss. You have to look out for your caveat emptor in the right. investment world, like everywhere else. Uh, most people are trying to sell you things. They have an angle. It's very hard for you to discern who is or who isn't on your side unless you do the work yourself and know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important to to know that. And that's, uh, you know, I gave a talk at Google a number of months back, and I started it this way. I said, uh, even Warren Buffett says that most people should just index. And I started the talk saying I agree with him. Then I left. <laughs> I didn't actually leave. I said, but then again, Warren Buffett doesn't index and neither do I. How come? And I explained the real opportunity set that's still out there. You know, I get a, um, you know, is this still any good? Does this stuff still work? Uh, I get a, I, you know, I get a, a hand raised in my class at Columbia every year, at least for the last five, six years. A student will raise their hand and sort of say, hey, Joel, congratulations on a nice 35 or 37-year career. Uh, but isn't the party over for us? There's more computers, ability to crunch numbers, hedge funds, smart people doing this stuff. You know, are we going to have the same chances that that you had? And so my students are second-year MBAs, roughly 27 years old on average. So I tell uh, – this is the way I answer. I say, I'll tell you what. Why don't we just go back to when you guys learned how to read? Let's take a look at the most – followed market in the world, that would be the United States. Let's look at the most followed stocks within the most followed market in the world. Those would be the S&P 500 stocks. And let's take a look at what's happened to the S&P 500 since you guys, you know, learned how to read. So I take them back 20 years when they were seven years old. And I say, from 1997 
to 2000, the S&P 500 doubled. From 2000 to 2002, it halved. From 2002 to 2007, it doubled. From 2007 to 2009, it halved. And from 2009 to today, it's roughly tripled, which is, which is my way of telling them that people are still crazy. Right. And uh, it's way understating the case. Because the S&P 500 is an average of 500 companies. If you lift up the covers and look at the dispersion going on between those 500 companies, between which are in favor at any particular time and which are out of favor, the, the price movements are uh, much wilder than what the average of 500 companies doubling and having, doubling and having. That doesn't even begin to tell the story. So if you drew a horizontal line uh, and called that fair value, like Ben Graham said, and then you draw a wavy line around that horizontal line uh, and call that stock prices. The market is pitching us opportunities all the time between stocks that are way below fair value and way above fair value. The reason investors don't beat the market has nothing to do with the market is not throwing us pitches and that it's not still emotional. There are behavioral problems. There's agency problems. There's a lot of other issues going on. But it's not because we're not getting uh, really great pitches all the time. People are still emotional. If you're cold and calculating, go back to what we talked about in the beginning, where stocks are ownership shares of businesses, and you're just cold and calculating about what they're worth, you can really take advantage of the market. I actually uh, tried to explain this concept. A friend of mine who's an orthopedic surgeon asked me to speak to a group of his uh, buddies you know, at a, at a big dinner that he was hosting for orthopedic surgeons. He said, talk about the stock market for a half an hour, try to explain it, and then take Q&A. So I talked for half an hour. I started taking Q&A. And when I was done, the questions were something like, hey, oil went up $2 yesterday. Should I buy some? Or market was down 1% yesterday. Should I get out? And my conclusion from that talk was that I had just crashed and burned. <laughs> and I had not really, uh, really gotten through to these very learned doctors. And then a notoriously difficult group to teach anything about because they believed themselves experts in everything. Well, I was asked to teach a, a much easier group. Uh, this was a group of ninth graders from Harlem. Right. Uh, this was a couple of years ago. And it was just for one day a week, for an hour a week, come in and teach them about the stock market. And this was right after I'd crashed and burned with the very learned, educated doctors, and I didn't want to fail with the kids. Right. But – as you're saying, I had fresh opportunity, blue sky with them. Right. I didn't know anything about the stock market. So I really thought long and hard about how I was going to uh, explain the stock market to them. And so the first day of class, I brought in a big, one of those old-time jars filled with jelly beans, you know, big glass jar filled with jelly beans. And I passed out three-by-five cards. And I passed the jelly bean jar around, and I told them to count the rows and do whatever they had to do, but write down how many jelly beans they thought were in the jar. And I went around the classroom and collected the three-by-five cards. Then I said, I'm going to go around the room one more time and ask you in front of everybody else how many jelly beans you think are in the jar. And you can keep your guess from your three-by-five card. Or you can change your guess. That's completely up to you. And one by one, I went around the room, and I asked each uh, student how many jelly beans they thought were in the jar. And I wrote that answer down. So let me tell you the results of the experiment. The average... For the three by five cards, you know, the first guess mm -hmm. uh, was 1,771 jelly beans. That's what it averaged to. And there were actually 1,776 jelly beans in the jar. Interesting. So that, that was pretty good. And when I went around the room one by one asking uh, each person publicly how, uh, how many jelly beans they thought that average guess was 850 jelly beans. That's interesting. And I explained to the kids that the second guess was actually the stock market. 
And what I was going to teach them to do is be the first guest, be cold and calculating, count the roads, be very disciplined in valuing the businesses, not influenced by everyone else around them. When the second guess, what happened? Well, everyone heard what everyone else was saying. And in the stock market, everyone read the newspapers. They talked to their buddies. They see what everyone's saying and doing and reading and seeing the results in the news every day. And they're influenced by everything around and they're not being cold and calculating and disciplined. And so I was going to teach them how to be cold and disciplined. And that's what we try to do. We're, we have a, a very disciplined process to value businesses, and that's what I was teaching them to do, and that's what stocks are, ownership shares of businesses, and all the noise, 99.9% of the noise you read in the paper every day, excluding this podcast, is really noise, and uh, so that's, you know, that lesson really resonated, I think, and I did much better than the doctors. I, I would have guessed from the beginning you would have done better with the kids. I, I'm a big fan of uh, Sturgeon's Law, which is 90% of everything is is junk. And when you talk about fil- filtering out the noise and trying to get to the signal, hey, the same thing is true across all sorts of different um, venues that that noise in the public is just, it's astonishing. And I'm uh, I'm fascinated by that, having people do it publicly and how that leads to such a different result. Uh, especially when they came so close uh, on average when they were were private. Let's talk a little bit about one of your later books, The Magic Formula. How did you how did you make this transition from what looks like special situations investing to really quantitative investing? Sure. Well, I'm glad you brought it up that way. So I wrote a book called The Little Book That Beats the Market and we don't think of ourselves as quantitative investors, although in the little book that beats the market, we use some simple quantitative uh, methods to show people concepts. Mm-hmm. Of uh, Ben Graham said, buy it cheap. His best student is a guy named Warren Buffett, who said, if I can buy a good business cheap, even better. And that made him one of the richest peoples in the, people in the world. And we agree. Uh, uh, have used that philosophy. Uh, that's what I teach at Columbia. That's what uh, we've used to make money over the last uh, 37 years, buying good and cheap businesses, and wanted to share that with everyone else. And so we ran a, a statistical test just to show that just using crude metrics for cheap and crude, crude metrics uh, for good and crude metrics for uh, and crude database uh, that we could do very well. And so that's what we showed in the magic formula. And we said the magic formula only really has two parts, cheap. Uh, and for cheap, we really rank companies based on uh, a simple metric uh, that was earnings before interest and taxes to enterprise value. Mm-hmm. And I usually describe that as rent. So in other words, uh, rent. you're buying a house uh-huh. and they're asking a million dollars. And your job is to figure out whether that's a good deal or not. So there are fairly simple questions you'd ask uh, if you're trying to figure that out. One would be, if I rented out this house, how much could I get for it after my expenses? What's your return on capital? No. So return on capital would be how the business invests its own money. Mm-hmm. It's really, uh, as the investor, what price do I have to pay for the house and how much is it going to earn me? So mm-hmm. it's, as an investor, it's my return on capital. Uh, but I don't want to confuse that with how the business itself 
invest its money, which is really how I look at return on capital. So Got it. There's, uh, so it's really a return on investment. Okay. Right? I'm laying out a million dollars, getting $80,000 a year in rent. That might be 8% net of my expenses, and interest rates are 2 or 3%. That may look pretty attractive. There are other questions you'd probably ask. You know, If we were really doing this analysis, you'd probably say, hey, what are the other houses on the block going for in the block next door, in the town next door? How relatively cheap is this? And we do the same thing. We say, how cheap is this business relative to similar companies? How cheap is it? relative to all companies, how cheap is it relative to history. That's what we do at Gotham, but for the purposes of the little book that beats the market, we just did uh, cheap on a free cash flow basis, just like how much rent. Uh, but And it's a very simple metric. And then we said, you know, I described this a, a little bit earlier, we talked about it, is I was trying to describe, I wrote this book for my kids, and I said, how do you describe re- how good the business is. And if you read through Buffett's letters, it's very clear that he's looking for businesses that earn high returns on tangible capital. And I described that as every business needs working capital, every business needs fixed assets. How well does it convert its working capital and fixed assets into earnings? So I said, if you're building a store, you have to buy the land, you have to build the store, you have to set up the displays, you have to stock it with inventory, and if all that costs you $400,000 and the store earns you $200,000 a year, that's a 50% return on tangible capital. And I compared that to a store I called in the book, uh, Just Broccoli, and... Which is not going to return a lot. No, just broccoli. Selling just broccoli in your store is probably not a good idea. I never tried it, but it's probably not a good idea. But you still have to buy the land, build the store, set up the display stock with inventory. Still going to cost you roughly the same $400,000. But because it's a dumb idea, maybe it only earns $10,000 a year. That's a 2.5% return on tangible capital. And all I said in the book was, all things being equal... If I can get the same price, I'd much prefer to own the business that can reinvest its money at 50% returns than 2.5% returns. And so what I did for the book's purposes is something very crude. I ranked all companies based on how cheap they were. And then I took another ranking of how good they were, what kind of returns on tangible capital they were getting. Then I combined those two ranks and bought the best combination of cheap and good. And I showed how well that works. It worked so well just using these crude metrics that the top 10% combined score for cheap and good did better than the second 10%, did better than the third 10% in order, all Mm -hmm. the way down to the bottom 10%. Just showing you the power of how this cheap and good works so well. And if I'm getting these numbers right, from 1988 to 2004, this portfolio would have returned about 30% a year, while at the same time, the market would have given you a little over 12%. Is that about right? Yes. So that was with small cap stocks, which uh, unless you're an individual investor, it would be hard to take advantage of right. uh, as a institutional investor. But I also did a similar study for the 1,000 largest companies, you know, the Russell 1000 companies. And, you know, which are very similar to the S&P 500. And that, that was 22% versus about 12%. So Still also pretty shabby. good. Yeah, I'll take and, that. And uh, possibly a little more uh, realistic for um, large investors. We have been speaking with Joel Greenblatt. He is the CIO of Gotham Asset Management. Uh, Be sure and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things uh, value and index plus. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. 
You can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. You and I have never met, never really spoken before, but I've been very much aware of who you are and what you've done over the years. And um, I have to tell you, some of the numbers that you have put up, and I know there's only so much we can talk about them, um, are just astonishing. We talked about the 50% a year before fees for 10 years. That's an amazing run. Like Renaissance technology that returned capital to investors, I have to imagine people were not especially happy when after 10 years of those sort of returns, you said, here, the, I have to give you this back. What was motivating it? Was it strictly scale or was there were there other factors that said, um, I'm, I'm done managing other people's money at that, at that point in time? You know, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I thought about that a lot. I love investing. Never was going to quit. We had gotten to a size, I suppose, after 10 years of having nice returns that we could keep our staff and continue to run our internal money. And for me, it's just fun to do. Uh, Did you think that at that size you couldn't continue generating those sorts of returns? Well, I think, uh, you know, I left out – you had asked me how we – did 50% a year, and you know, one was I said we stayed small, mm-hmm. two, uh, we were concentrated, and three, really, we got lucky, right? Okay, that you have to have some luck to get those kind of returns during uh, that period of time, and and so I, one of the most fortunate people on the planet, I have a large family with five kids, uh, I love doing this, uh. I like to do really well, so there's pressure I put on myself when I'm running other people's money. Uh-huh. That maybe I have a little less so when I'm not running it. So I don't think it was really a calculated plan other than, you know, how can I continue to enjoy what I'm doing in, in, in the best way and still get to do what I like and still work with the people I like to do? And so it seemed like the right thing to do at the time, I guess, is the best uh, huh. way I can That makes you. sense. And it took... Almost 20 years before you started? Oh, it's really a decade. About 14 years. 14 yeah. years before you said, it took that long to forget the stress of running other people's money? Well, you know, when you own six or eight names, uh, one of the issues there is that uh, every two, three years, pretty much like clockwork, uh, <laughs> I'd wake up and... Um, 
one lose of them, 20 or 30 percent of my net worth right. in, in a couple of days uh, because one or two things weren't going our way. Either right. we were wrong or just, you know, they went the wrong way for a little while. We knew what we owned. We were going to get paid back. And that's a little more stressful. And sure. it had to happen. When you're that concentrated, that has to happen. A little more stressful with other people's money. Sure. Uh, since I know what we owned and A, I'm a big boy. So when I make a mistake, you know, I just chalk it up to a learning experience and right. move on. Uh, let's just say I think my investors were great, but maybe they wouldn't be so kind when that 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 uh, happened. And it, and it did seem to happen every two, three years. And I think that's unavoidable. So when we developed the strategy to take advantage of our principles, meaning buying good, cheap businesses and shorting expensive ones that uh, – that were trading way above what we thought they were worth, when we discovered that we can actually make more money having diversified portfolios and that our bad days would be 20 or 30 basis points of underperformance, not 20, 30% down, <laughs> uh, that was, um, A, it wouldn't degrade our own returns taking other money when we had hundreds of right. stocks on the long and short side. And B, it wouldn't hurt our own returns because more diversity helped our returns because uh, when you don't get what you expect – meaning you get aberrationally bad returns, uh, sometimes that ends up in negative compounding. So when you have hundreds of stocks, more diversity on each side, you get less uh, aberrationally bad returns. It's why insurance companies don't insure five people. Because even if you do great underwriting of those five people, if someone steps off a curb, right. you can tell I don't sell insurance, but if someone steps off a curb and ruins all your numbers, you know, uh, it didn't matter what kind of underwriting you did of, let's say, life insurance or it's health insurance. It's too small a pool. You need a much yeah, bigger so, pool. If you can be right, you know, they want to be right on average. So they want to be right over hundreds or thousands of people. And so when we realized that we could make more money being more diversified, uh, when you go long, short, and put on leverage, you want that. Uh, it didn't hurt us to take outside money. Uh, because diversity was good for us. Uh, and, you know, to, to cover so many companies, we needed a big research team. So we built up our research team and our tech team. They help us trade, you know, where, uh, you know, tech team, one guy we have, you know, was MIT Chess Champ. Another guy was uh, one Google Co-Jam, you know, out of 25,000 people. Another guy's you know, as smart if not smarter than those guys. So uh, I get to work with a tech team and they help us trade efficiently. They help us uh, uh, trade tax efficiently. So we're very, very tax efficient, help us uh, put together the systems where our uh, fundamental analysts can cover a broad range. Uh, so it's been fun building a team to do all these different things. So I'd say we're fundamentally, we, we fundamentally value businesses, but our tech team helps us put together risk-adjusted portfolios very well and trade efficiently and be tax efficient and all those things. And just building this whole thing has, you know, doing something with the same principles that we've always used uh, has been really just fun. Tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background. Oh, well, I don't know what they don't know. I've written three books, and I always tell personal stories within the book. So I think I've included uh, lots of embarrassing things. I uh, I don't think I've ever written that I enjoy playing tennis. I did write that I enjoy sailing and that I'm not very good at it, and mm -hmm. I've been in a bunch of close calls with that. But uh, uh, that's probably how I spend most of my leisure time uh, as well as along with my family. So there's nothing really too fascinating. Tell, tell us about some of your early mentors. Well, 
you know, one of the reasons I write books is because my mentors really came from reading people who were kind enough to share with me uh, their wisdom over time. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, people like Andrew Tobias and, uh, and Benjamin Graham and uh, even Buffett in his letters and uh, uh, David Dreeman, you know, uh, who wrote Contrarian Investment Strategy and John Train, who wrote The Money Masters. And all these people really were helpful in forming and getting me involved in investing. And, you know, I wanted to share some of the things that I learned, too, because that's how I learned. It really wasn't so much... Uh, you know, some of the people were dead and they were still sharing with me and and some of the people were just kind to do so. And I, you know, it was one of my ways, you know, besides the fact that I enjoy writing, it was another way that I felt I could give back. So let, let's talk about some books. What what are some of your favorite books? You've already mentioned the two from Graham, Intelligent Investor and Security Analysis. What other books did you find um, influential, be they... Finance, non-finance, fiction, non-fiction. What sure. what really stayed with you? You mentioned uh, David Dremen on contrarian strategies. That's a uh, interesting book. Yeah. Um, well, there's a book called The Invisible Heart, which explains basic economics to most people. And most people uh, today, you know, especially young people, are kind of more socialists. Oh, uh, isn't isn't that isn't the old line? Yeah. Um, socialists uh, uh, in your youth and capitalists in your older age. I know I'm mangling that. Yes, no, I, I, I know the reference, and that's partially true. It's just discouraging uh, to me that the, the understanding basic economics is kind of necessary. And so there's a book that's uh, a fiction book. Uh, um, to, uh, Russ Roberts wrote it uh, called The Invisible Heart. Not that mm-hmm. many people have read it, but it's a very short book that – uh, I think most people should read, so I would read that. I've had my kids read that. Um, Russ Roberts also maintains a blog. Is, yes, is the same he does. one? Yes, yes. And did he, does he do um, uh, actually Econ Talker or something like that? He probably does. I haven't followed that. It is a book about economics. It's a fictionalized uh, book about a high school economics teacher. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's just a, a pleasant, short book way to to learn basic principles. Uh, so I'd highly recommend that, even if you don't want to be in a, you know, no formulas, just you want to be an econo- you want to understand basic economic principles. I think that's one of the best that people haven't seen. I think for investing, Moneyball was one of the great, if, you like, if you're a sports fan at for all. Sure. Just uh, understanding how to buy undervalued f- players is is very similar to buying undervalued stocks. Uh, and so that's a really helpful uh, book for most people. Uh, I just read a book uh, called The Power of Moments, which I really enjoyed, which says that most of your uh, seminal moments in your life really come between the ages of 15 and 30 because you have a lot of firsts. Uh, you know, it's the first time you graduate and leave home, it might be your first girlfriend. Uh, you're graduating college, you're getting your first job, you might be getting married, you might have kids. It all happens in that kind of compact period for most mm-hmm. people. And people think back for the rest of their life about those seminal moments. And it's really about a, a book about creating your own moments. In other words, those happen because those are natural first. Those, sure. those happen naturally because of evolution. But can't you create those kind of important moments in your life? And it really comes down to creating, doing new things. Always creating. You, you have to be a little more creative when you get older to create those new things. But those are the things you think about, uh, w- which I think are uh, quite important. I'm also reading another book now, which I think I'm having a lot of fun with, which uh, 
is, uh, I think it's called Never Split the Difference, uh-huh. and it's by uh, the ex-chief uh, hostage negotiator for the FBI, you know, just huh. about negotiating and, and also thinking of, uh, you know, how you can apply some of these concepts to business, you know, to be be effective, so... Enjoyed that. Uh, you know, everyone has to read you who's know, interested in investing, intelligent investor, you know. Uh, I think it's chapters 8 and 20. Buffett always points out, and I agree with that. I think Buffett wrote a bunch of letters uh, that were compiled by Lawrence Cunningham uh, uh, that in, into topics. Mm-hmm. And that was laid out, and I always assign that in my class, which I just think is a, a great, great book. And you've mentioned my three books three times, and so you have to read those too. <laughs> Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Uh, I'll talk about my worst investment, not specifically what it was, but it, but it was an investment in a uh, trade show company mm-hmm. uh, that I bought through. Uh, it was really I created through a spinoff, and I was shorted one thing and bought another, and I actually paid three dollars for something that uh, I was immediately going to get six dollars for. Uh, but I fell in love with the business. And it actually ended up did I paid three dollars for it. Eventually, in short order, went past way past the six dollars because I loved the business. It went to twelve dollars a share, which was pretty good. But I had a very large position in it at that time. And what I loved about the business was they ran a computer trade show uh, called Comdex in oh sure uh, in Las Vegas, and uh, I loved the business uh, because plenty of space in Las Vegas. If they got more clients to display at their trade show, uh, they could just rent more space for $2 and resell it for $62. Right. They didn't have to commit it. So that, it was like a $60 contribution for every uh, incremental sale they could make. And that's generally called operating leverage. And that's what I loved about the business. And I think people are very familiar with financial leverage, right? If you put up a dollar and buy, borrow $9 and buy something worth $10, you realize that if that $10 thing you bought falls a dollar or two, you're going to go broke. And everyone understands that. That's very straightforward. Uh, so this was my lesson in operating leverage. You know, unfortunately, after 9-11, uh, right before 9-11, the trade show bought another trade show. They borrowed a lot of money to buy it. And then 9-11 happened and people didn't want to travel. And so I learned a lesson in uh, operating leverage where when you don't get that $62 in it and it only costs you $2, uh, $60 of less earnings drops straight to the bottom line <laughs> as well. Uh, and that's called operating leverage. And I just thought I'd describe that to you so that people would realize that on the way up, uh, just like financial leverage, it's a lot of fun. And on the way down, operating leverage on the way down is not very much fun. So <laughs> I got out of most of my stock at about a dollar. So I'll just leave it at that uh, and say, uh, that's a lesson. That's my investment lesson in operating leverage. At least be aware. <laughs> um, our, our last two questions. Uh, what sort of advice would you give a millennial or a recent college graduate who told you, hey, I'm interested in going into financials as a career? Well, you know, I, I've taught at Columbia, as I mentioned, for the last 22 years. And so uh, I tell my students that, uh, first day of class, actually, I tell them that, you know, I don't think there's a lot of social value in being a uh, investment manager. Uh, it's not that I don't think uh, investors who do work set, help set prices and allocate capital and all those things. But I just think, A, they're not very good at it, and B, it would all get done without you. And smart people doing this, uh, too much horsepower, I'd rather them go into other fields. I have loved being in this field. I enjoy it, and there's nothing wrong with it. 
Uh, but what I tell my students is I'm even one step removed from doing something I don't think is that socially valuable because I'm teaching you how to do something that's, you know, so what am I doing here? And so what I make my students promise, and I think they take to it well, is that if I do teach them and I am helpful in, in, in learning how to do this and they enjoy it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a great thing. But they should think of a way to give back. They, uh, you know, we get way overpaid in this business as we're successful. And if they're successful with what I teach them, and I, I'd say that to any young person, if they're successful in this field, I think they should really think of uh, different ways. They, they're clearly smart people. They're clearly uh, driven people. They, they're thoughtful. And so they should be able to think of a way to give back and, and use those skills for that. And so that, that's what I tell young people who want to go into the investment business. And our final question, what is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew 37 years ago when you were first starting? Uh, I would say probably uh, the secret to being successful is patience. The big secret that no one bought, I might as well tell everyone, is really just having a longer time horizon than most people. And understanding what you're doing, meaning you're buying businesses, and if you're good at valuing them, I, I actually make a promise to my students, first day of class every year, I promise them if they do good valuation work, the market will agree with them. <laughs> I just never tell them when. Could be a couple weeks, could be two or three years, but if they do good work, the market will agree with them. And to keep that in mind, to continue to do good work and have patience. And you know, since you can check your stock price 30 times a minute now, thing, you know, we used to get when I was you know, coming into the business, you used to get a quarterly statement and throw it right in the garbage. You know, you didn't really care that much. Now, you minute to minute, you know, even our best investors, you know, $20 billion uh, endowments expect weekly returns from us in our private funds. I have no idea what they do with that information, but that's what they're asking for. And everyone's judged on very short time horizons. Right. So if you can step back and take a longer time horizon, that is the big secret that I, I could share. And the sooner you learn that and the sooner I learn that, the better off that uh, they and, and I will, will be. We have been speaking with Joel Greenblatt, co-CIO of Gotham Asset Management. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg, Overcast, and you could see any of the other 200 such podcasts we've done previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put this podcast together each week. Caroline is my engineer today. Medina Parwana is our producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Mike Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.